You're listening to the Bank of Marquis Movie Podcast. Fire! Light up the sky. It's the entertainment thrill of a lifetime. Poppins, Walt Disney's newest and most delightfully entertaining motion picture. Starring the toast of Broadway's musical stage, the incomparable Julie Andrews. For a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down, the medicine go down, medicine go down. Just a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down in a most delightful way. And America's fabulous funny man, Dick Van Dyke, as you've never seen him before. Mary Poppins. Oh, it's a jolly holiday with Mary. Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious Even though the sound of it is something quite atrocious If you say it loud enough, you'll always sound precocious Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious Goodbye, Mary Poppies. Don't stay away too long Well, that certainly brought back some memories Hi, I'm Andy, and I like movies All kinds of movies And you're listening to my podcast the Bank of Marquis Movies podcast. Today, we'll do a deep dive on Mary Poppins from 1964. It's a classic from my childhood, and I think maybe my first favorite movie. It stars, of course, Julie Andrews, Dick Van Dyke, David Tomlinson, Glynis Johns, Karen Dotrice, Matthew Garber, Rita Shaw, Hermione Baddeley, Elsa Lanchester, Arthur Treacher, Reginald Owen, Jane Darwell, and Ed Wynn. Directed by Robert Stevenson of Walt Disney Productions, written by Bill Walsh and Don DeGrotti, and based on the Mary Poppins series of books by P.L. Travers, with songs by Richard M. and Robert B. Sherman. I was entranced by this movie when I was a kid because it combined live action and animation, you know, like a good movie should. It starred Julie Andrews in her Oscar-winning role in her feature film debut, and is included among the American Film Institute's 1998 list of the 400 movies nominated for the top 100 greatest American movies. It was also selected by the Library of Congress for preservation in the National Film Registry in December 2013 and is included among the 1,001 movies you must see before you die. You know what, so far every film that I've done a podcast about has been included on this list. Walt Disney first attempted to purchase the film rights from P.L. Travers as early as 1938. She rejected his offer as she didn't believe a film version would do justice to her creation. Now, for more than 20 years, Disney periodically made efforts to convince Travers to allow him to make a Poppins film. He finally succeeded in 1961, although Travers demanded and got script approval. The Sherman brothers composed the music and were also involved in the film's development, suggesting the setting be changed from the 1930s to the Edwardian era. The final attempt to get Travers to agree to let Disney do this film was the basis of the 2013 film Saving Mr. Banks, starring Tom Hanks as Disney, and Emma Thompson as Travers. This film was based on the first novel in the Mary Poppins series of films, and even though she was an advisor to the production, she disapproved of the dilution of the harsher aspect of Mary Poppins' character, 
felt ambivalent about the music, and so hated the use of animation that she ruled out any further adaptations of her books. The one thing that P.L. Travers did insist on is that there would be no suggestion of any kind of a romance between Mary Poppins and Bert. And this is explicitly referenced in the song Jolly Holiday. And I gotta admit, she was right on that score. So casting, how was this film cast? Well, Walt Disney looked at a variety of people for the role of Mary Poppins, including Betty Davis and Angela Lansbury. Well, and then Walt saw Julie do a number from Camelot on The Ed Sullivan Show, so he flew to New York to convince her to do the movie. But Julie was holding out to try to do the movie version of My Fair Lady, a role she originated on Broadway. But Jack Warner of Warner Brothers wanted movie star Audrey Hepburn to do My Fair Lady. So Julie agreed to do Poppins. In an ironic twist, Andrews would beat out Hepburn for the Golden Globe, and Andrews would also win the Oscar. In one of her acceptance speeches, Andrews thanked Jack Warner of Warner Brothers for not giving her the My Fair Lady role so she could do Poppins. Now, Disney cast Dick Van Dyke as Bert after seeing his work on The Dick Van Dyke Show. And then after Van Dyke got cast, he lobbied Mr. Disney to portray the senior Mr. Dawes. But Disney originally felt that he was too young for the part, so Van Dyke had to audition for the role wearing the old man makeup. Now, although he is fondly remembered for this role, Van Dyke's attempt at a Cockney accent is regarded as one of the worst film accents in history. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Now, filming took place between May and September 1963, with post-production and animation taking another 11 months. Get on with it. Yes, get on with it! We open on a painted backdrop of the London skyline in Overture Plays. Remember when an Overture used to play before a film? Uh, we pan over and see a person sitting in the clouds. This person, of course, is Mary Poppins, Julie Andrews. Now, if I had to point to one picture that says Walt Disney, it would be this film. It has every aspect of what one expects in a Disney family picture, one that Walt personally oversaw and was justifiably proud of when it opened. He stated that we don't make movies for children. We make films that children can enjoy with their parents. Now, Walt Disney was, and still is, an inspiration for me. And I'm sure I'll cover him in detail in future podcasts. But for now, let's talk about Julie Andrews. All right, Julie Andrews. I have three distinct eras for Julie Andrews in my head. The first, when I was a kid, when she was playing Mary Poppins, and then quickly Maria in The Sound of Music, one of the best back-to-back two film performances in movie history. Her second phase was in the late 70s and early 80s when she was performing in adult comedies directed by her husband, Blake Edwards, movies like S.O.B. and Victor Victoria. And then her third phase in the 2000s when she was playing grand dames like in The Princess Diaries and the Shrek films. She was born Julia Elizabeth Wells on October 1st, 1935 in England. Her mother and stepfather, both vaudeville performers, discovered her four-octave singing voice and immediately got her a singing career. She performed in musicals throughout her childhood and teens, and at age 20, she launched her stage career in a London Palladium production of Cinderella. She came to Broadway in 1954 with The Boyfriend and became a bona fide star two years later in 1956 in the role of Eliza Doolittle in My Fair Lady. 
She continued to work, and in 1960, she played Guinevere in Camelot. Now, I've already chronicled how Walt Disney saw her in Camelot and recruited her for Mary Poppins, and then Robert Wise offered her the sound of music. Unfortunately for her, she soon found herself typecast as a singing, sugary, sweet nanny, and audiences of the time were reluctant to accept her in dramatic roles such as in The Americanization of Emily with James Garner, or in Alfred Hitchcock's thriller Torn Curtain in 1966. She had another musical hit with Thoroughly Modern Millie, this movie co-starred Mary Tyler Moore, who starred with Dick Van Dyke on TV. Millie was, for a time, the most successful film Universal had released. In 1968, Andrews was poised for another great success with Star, a musical biography of Gertrude Lawrence, directed by her Sound of Music director, Robert Wise. It was nominated for seven Oscars and bombed at the box office. Also bombing at the box office was her next film, Darling Lily, in 1970, as audiences' tastes in movie musicals began to change. In the 70s, she worked in nightclubs and hosted a TV variety series, as well as starring in a series of TV specials with her best friend, Carol Burnett. If you have not seen these Carol Burnett, Julie Andrews specials, check them out. There's at least four of them that I can remember, and they're fantastic. She had a career renaissance in the late 70s and early 80s, appearing in adult comedies directed by her husband, Blake Edwards. There was Ten, starring Dudley Moore, which people love, but to be honest, I don't like so much. The brilliant SOB and Victor Victoria in 1982, which earned her an Oscar nom for Best Actress in a Leading Role. Now, she continued acting through the 80s and 90s and then had surgery to remove a node in her throat. The surgery was not successful, and her husband stated that she would never be able to sing again. She then found success in 2001 with The Princess Diaries and also as the voice of the Queen in Shrek 2, 3, 4 and continues to perform off and on to this day at the young old age of 84. Most recently, it is said she voiced a sea creature in Aquaman. We then cut to a street performer performing a one-man band number. We find out that this person is Bert, Dick Van Dyke. His mood suddenly changes from happy to pensive as he notices a change in the weather. Winds in the east, mist coming in. Like something is brewing, about to begin. Can't put me finger on what lies in store. I feel what's to happen. All happened before. Now, that's an important line to note in this film. Has happened before. Bert looks into the camera and addresses the audience, breaking the fourth wall. Just like how I will now look at you folks and talk about Dick Van Dyke. Richard Wayne Van Dyke, who was born on December the 13th, 1925, was probably my first favorite performer as a kid. I certainly watched him every week on the Dick Van Dyke show, where he won five Emmy Awards as Rob Petrie. And then, of course, there's Mary Poppins as Bert. And I also saw him in another Disney film called Lieutenant Robin Crusoe, USN, kind of a modern take on the Robinson Crusoe tale. He was born in West Plains, Missouri. And at an early age, he knew he wanted to be a performer and was enthralled by such performers as Stan Laurel, which he imitated throughout his life. He was a radio DJ in Danville, Illinois. And then he formed a comedy duo with Phil Erickson called Eric and Van, the Merry Mutes. And then he made his Broadway debut in 1959 in The Girls Against the Boys and then was cast in the lead of Bye Bye Birdie, which caught the attention of Carl Reiner, 
who cast him as Rob Petrie in The Dick Van Dyke Show. He then went on to do Mary Poppins, Lieutenant Robin Crusoe, Never a Dull Moment, and then, of course, he pretty much repeated his character of Bert when he played Caractacus Potts in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang in 1968. At that point, Van Dyke really wanted to break out of that wholesome image that he had and tried his hand at such black comedies as Cold Turkey and a dramatic turn as The Comic, both of which were kind of, but not really successful. He did do a very good turn as a villain in a 1974 episode of Columbo, so if you haven't seen that episode, go back and look at it. He's really good in that. He then starred with Hope Lang in the new Dick Van Dyke show from 71 to 74, and while it was good, it never did recapture the magic of his earlier series. In 1977, he was cast to replace Harvey Corman as one of the players in The Carol Burnett Show, and he only lasted about 10 or 11 episodes in there because he just didn't quite gel with Burnett and the rest of the cast. And from there, he kind of kicked around in the 80s and early 90s, doing guest shots at TV shows here and there like Airwolf and Matlock and Golden Girls. And then was cast in Dick Tracy in 1990 as D.A. Fletcher. He then found new fame in the 90s as Dr. Mark Sloan in Diagnosis Murder, kind of a Murder, She Wrote spinoff. He continued to get more work here and there, really at this point trading off on his celebrity as being Dick Van Dyke more than anything else. Then in 2006, Ben Stiller cast him against type as the bad guy in Night at the Museum. And if you haven't seen this movie, go back and check it out. It's really fun, and him and Mickey Rooney really make a fun bad guy pairing. He continues to be active to this day, and even appeared in the sequel Mary Poppins Returns in 2018 at the ripe old age of 93. He is the recipient of five primetime Emmys, a Tony, a Grammy, and was inducted into the Television Hall of Fame in 1995. He received the Screen Actors Guild's highest honor, the SAG Life Achievement Award, in 2013. He has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame and has been recognized as a Disney legend. Bert then escorts us to number 17 Cherry Tree Lane. Along the way, he introduces us to Admiral Boom, Reginald Owen, who you might remember as Scrooge in the 1938 version of A Christmas Carol, which is shown every year at Christmas time. Boom gives us a premonition of what's to come. Good afternoon to you, young man. Where are you bound? Number 17, got some parties here in tow, what wants to see it? A word of advice, young man. Storm signals are up at number 17. Bit of heavy weather brewing there. Thank you, sir. Keep an eye skin. Now, okay, let's talk quickly about Dick Van Dyke's English accent. Okay, I admit it, it's not very good. But as a kid, I did not notice. And now as I watch the amazing talent displayed on the screen, the joy, the energy, and the enthusiasm, I'm not bothered by it. And I suggest if you are, you're kind of missing the point of the movie. We then go to 17 Cherry Tree Lane, and there is a commotion as the two maids, Rita Shaw and Hermione Baddeley, are trying desperately to keep the current nanny, Katie Nana, Elsa Lanchester, from quitting. Now, a note about Elsa Lanchester, uh, she was struggling at this point in her career to get work. Karen Dotris, who plays Jane Banks, her father, Roy Dotris, was a friend of Elsa Lanchester, so suggested to Walt Disney that they hire Elsa for this part. So at this point, Mrs. Banks, Glynis Johns, returns from a suffragette meeting, and thus we have our first musical number featuring Mrs. Banks, the maids, and an unwilling Katie Nana. If I may have a word, Mrs. Banks. So cast off the shackles. 
Mrs. Banks, I have something to say to you. Now, this is a good time to talk about Glynis Johns. I really only know Glynis Johns for two things. One, her work in Mary Poppins as Mrs. Banks, and in the Broadway production of A Little Night Music, where Stephen Sondheim wrote the song Send in the Clowns specifically for her. She was born on the 5th of October, 1923. Hey, that's my birthday. In Pretoria, South Africa. Now, she was nominated for an Oscar in 1960 for the film The Sundowners, a film I have to admit I have never seen. I have no idea. She appeared in many, many, many stage productions in England and appeared in the Walt Disney movies The Sword and the Rose in 1953 and Rob Roy the Highland Rogue also in 53. She appeared with Danny Kaye in The Court Jester in 1955 and then appeared back on stage in 1956 in a production of Major Barbara on Broadway. In 1960, she was in The Sundowners, which earned her Oscar nomination. She then followed that up inexplicably with The Cabinet of Caligari in 1962. Then she starred with Jackie Gleason in Papa's Delicate Condition. She had her own TV series, Glynis, in 1963 before being cast in Mary Poppins. She kicked around in various TV series, playing the villain Lady Penelope Peasoup in the Batman TV series in 1967 before going to Broadway for a little night music for which she won a Tony Award. After that, besides episodes of things like The Love Boat and Murder, She Wrote, she's probably best known for playing Diane Chambers' mother, Helen Chambers, in a 1983 episode of Cheers. She voiced Ms. Grimwood in a 1988 episode of Scooby-Doo and the Ghoul School and was in the 1994 dark comedy The Ref. Her last credit was playing Molly Shannon's grandma in the 1999 film Superstar. As of this recording, she resides in Santa Monica, California, enjoying a quiet retirement. Now, it's important to note that in this film, the script needed to have a reason for Mrs. Banks to not be around her children all that much. By moving the setting of the film to the turn of the 20th century and the suffragette movement, it gives Mrs. Banks an almost heroic heroine crusader vibe and not just a negligent mother. Now, Mr. Banks, David Tomlinson, in his old fuddy-duddy proper English gentleman best, comes home from his job at the bank, and we have our next musical number. I feel a surge of deep satisfaction, much as a king astride his noble steed. Thank you. When I return from daily strife to hearth and wife, how pleasant is the life I lead. Now, at first glance, you would think that Mr. Tomlinson went to the Rex Harrison School of Talk Singing, but it's a deliberate choice on his part. While Mr. Banks is all bottled up, he doesn't allow himself the freedom to sing. Now contrast this song with the freedom and singing of the last song in the film. It shows the change in the Banks character. All right, David Tomlinson. This will be fairly brief because there's not much I can say about him besides that he was born in England and did a lot of stage work and some English movies I'd never heard of but hit a trifecta with Walt Disney movies in the 60s, starting with Mary Poppins, following it up with The Love Bug, and completing the trifecta with Bedknobs and Broomsticks. He then went back to England, did a lot of other English movies, and retired in 1980. He passed away in 2000. Now, Mr. Banks finds out that the nanny has resigned and the children are missing. Mr. Banks calls the police, and while he's on the phone with them, a constable, Arthur Treacher, yep, he of Arthur Treacher Fish and Chips franchise fame, shows up at the bank's doorstep with the children. The children, Jane and Michael, played by Karen Dotrice and Matthew Garber, ran off chasing their kite, which was caught in a gust of wind. 
The children suggest that their father help them with the kite, but he can't be bothered. Now Mr. Banks decides that the only thing to be done is that he must be the one to hire the next nanny. During this discussion, the children show up with their job description for the nanny. If you want this choice position, have a cheery disposition. Jane, I don't... Rosy cheeks, no warts. That's the part I put in. Play games, all sorts, hurry nanny. Many thanks, sincerely. Jane and Michael, thanks. Now Mr. Banks takes the children's note, tears it up, and throws it in the fireplace. The pieces of the note fly up the flue and out of the house. We see the weather vane move to show a change in wind direction. There is a line of very stern-looking nannies lined up outside of the bank's home. A wind fires up and blows all these nannies away. A side fact. Because of the stunt work needed by these nannies, a good portion of them were stunt men dressed up in drag. Now, as all the maids are blown away, Mary Poppins comes floating down, using her umbrella, of course, and lands right outside the bank's home. The maid opens the door to let in the nanny candidates, and in walks Mary Poppins, like she owns the place. The Banks children remark that she is exactly who they were picturing when they wrote their job description. Poppins comes in, takes control of the interview, and is hired by a befuddled Mr. Banks. Now Poppins rides up the banister to the children and delivers a line that I use to this day. Close your mouth, please, Michael. We are not a codfish. Now Poppins heads into the nursery with the children and pulls many items out of her carpet bag using an old magician's trick, where more items come out of the bag that can possibly fit in it. Now, a side note, the look of astonishment on the children's face is real, as they were not told about the bit, nor how the trick is done. Now, Poppins pulls out her magic tape measure, measures the children, and then herself finding, of course, that she is... As I expected, Mary Poppins, practically perfect in every way. Now, this is a bit that Travers insisted stay in. Her nanny actually had a tape measure that said, practically perfect in every way. Poppins now leads the children in tidying up the nursery with a song. In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. You find the fun, and snap! The job's a game. And every task you undertake becomes a piece of cake, a lark, a spree. It's very clear to see that a Now, just in case you didn't think Julie Andrews is talented, the whistle of the birds in the Spoonful of Sugar song was actually Julie Andrews. They had hired a professional whistler to whistle for the birds, but the whistler sounded too professional, and Julie said, oh, I can do it, and did it in one take. Now, purists came back to Mr. Disney and said, well, these birds that you're using, they don't whistle. To which Mr. Disney said, in the Disney world, all birds whistle. Now, Poppins takes the children to an outing in the park where they run into Bert, who is making some chalk drawings. Bert and the children convince Poppins to enter into one of the drawings to have a jolly holiday. Oh, it's a jolly holiday with Mary. Mary makes your heart so light. You haven't changed a bit, have you? When the day is gray and ordinary, 
Mary makes the sun shine bright. Oh, honestly. Now, as a kid, I was amazed at the live action meets animation portion of this film. And I thought to myself, now that is how you make a film. I have to admit, if you are not charmed by this film, by the time the penguins show up in the Jolly Holiday song, then you need to get visited by three spirits on Christmas Eve. And just to top it all off, we get... It's super califragilistic, expialidocious, even though the sound of it is something quite atrocious. If you say it loud enough, you'll always sound precocious. Super Interestingly enough, upon my rewatch of this film for this podcast, I was surprised by how long the animated in the chalk drawing sequence is, taking 18 minutes of the 139 minute runtime of the film, about 13% of the film. As a kid, I thought it went by in a flash. It also strikes me how strong the chemistry is between Julie Andrews and Dick Van Dyke. I give P.L. Travers credit for this. Though she was a pain in the tuckets throughout the pre-production and filming of this movie, as shown in the 2013 movie Saving Mr. Banks, she insisted that there be no romantic subplot with Bert and Mary, and her choice was right. So once they are home from their chalk-drawing escapades, the children are too excited to sleep. So Poppins sings... Stay away, don't rest your head, don't lie down. Upon your bed while the moon drifts in the skies, stay awake, don't close your eyes. Now, it is said that Andrews, a noted perfectionist, insisted on almost 50 takes of this song to get the tone just right. We are now at the intermission of this film. That's right, an intermission. So let's have one ourselves. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Settle back now, content, comfortable, well-fed, and ready for some fine entertainment. Is everybody happy? Then let's go. It's showtime. The next day, everyone in the Banks household is extremely happy. Cook, maid, Mrs. Banks and the children, Jane and Michael. I just don't understand why everyone's so confounded and cheerful. Let's talk about Karen Dotrice and Matthew Garber. Karen Dotrice and Matthew Garber did three movies together, so this bio will be slightly short. Uh, Karen Dotrice is the daughter of Roy Dotrice, a famed Shakespearean actor in England who is probably best known as playing father in the TV series Beauty and the Beast from 1987 to 1990, or as the narrator of the audiobooks of the Game of Thrones series right now. Karen's father got her into show business and brought her to the attention of Walt Disney, where she was cast in The Three Lives of Thomasina as a girl whose relationship with her father is mended by the magical reappearance of her cat, 
Matthew Garber, a friend of the Dotrice family, was brought to the attention of Disney by Roy Dotrice, and he was signed on to play her brother in that film. Next up was Mary Poppins, and Mr. Disney, being no fool, had a pair of child actors in his stable who worked well together and were convincing as brother and sister, so he cast them as Jane and Michael Banks in Poppins. A few years later, they cashed in on their fame in the Disney film The Nomobile. Unfortunately, Matthew passed away at the age of 21 from uh, complications from hepatitis. Karen went into semi-retirement after that, but was coaxed back into the spotlight twice in 2004. She was named a Disney legend at a ceremony in Burbank, at which Matthew Garber was honored posthumously, and she was interviewed and provided audio commentary for the 40th anniversary edition Mary Poppins DVD release. In 2018, Dotrice appears in a blink-or-you'll-miss-it cameo role in Mary Poppins Returns. Mary and Bert receive word that Mary's Uncle Albert, the great vaudevillian performer Ed Wynn, is ill. They and the children rush over to Albert's flat to find him floating on the ceiling and laughing uproariously. I love to laugh <laughs> loud and long and clear. I love to laugh. <laughs> it's getting worse every year. <laughs> the more I laugh, <laughs> the more I fill with glee. You're no help at all. The more I'm a merrier me. It's embarrassing. The more I'm a merrier me. Now, Wynn and Van Dyke play off each other wonderfully during this scene. Probably a good time to deep dive into the background of Ed Wynn. Ed Wynn was born Isaiah Edwin Leopold in Philadelphia and ran away from home in his teens and eventually adapted his middle name Edwin into his new stage name Ed Wynn to save his family the embarrassment of having a lowly comedian as a relative. Wynn began his career in vaudeville in 1903 and was a star of the Ziegfeld Follies starting in 1914. Wynn wrote, directed, and produced many Broadway shows and was known for his silly costumes and props as well as for the giggly, wavering voice he developed for the 1921 musical review, The Perfect Fool. In the early 1930s, Wynn hosted the popular radio show, The Fire Chief. Like many former vaudeville performers who turned to radio in the same decade, the stage-trained wind insisted on playing for a live studio audience, doing each program as an actual stage show, using visual bits to augment his written material, which really went over well on the radio. Wynn reprised his Fire Chief radio character in two movies, Follow the Leader in 1930 and The Chief in 1933. He was then offered the title role of The Wizard of Oz, but turned it down. Wynn first appeared on television on July 7, 1936, in a brief ad-lib spot during an NBC experimental television broadcast. In 1949 and 50, Wynn hosted one of the first network comedy variety television shows and won an Emmy Award. He would go on to perform in two other television series, and when the third one was canceled, his son, actor Keenan Wynn, encouraged him to make a career change rather than retire. The comedian reluctantly began a career as a dramatic actor in television and movies. Father and son appeared in three productions, the first of which was the 1956 Playhouse 90 broadcast of Rod Serling's play Requiem for a Heavyweight. Requiem established Wynn as a serious dramatic actor who could easily hold his own with the best. His performance in The Diary of Anne Frank received an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actor. And in 1959, Wynn appeared on Serling's TV series The Twilight Zone in One for the Angels. Serling, a longtime admirer, had written that episode especially for him, and Wynn later, in 1963, starred in the episode 90 Years Without Slumbering. For the rest of his life, Wynn skillfully moved between comic and dramatic roles. 
Now, working for Walt Disney, Wynn provided the voice of the Mad Hatter in Walt Disney's film Alice in Wonderland and played the toy maker alongside Annette Funicello and Tommy Sands in Walt Disney's Babes in Toyland. In 64, he appeared in Mary Poppins, in which he played Uncle Albert, and he reteamed with Disney the following year in That Darn Cat. He also had brief roles in The Absent-Minded Professor and Son of Flubber. His final performance as Rufus in Walt Disney's The Nomobile was released a few months after his death. When died in 1966. Now, there are a bunch of corny jokes in this scene, the most famous being... Speaking of knives, I know a man with a wooden leg named Smith. What's the name of his other leg? <laughs> it is said that in Walt Disney World, in the lost and found in Frontierland, there is a wooden leg with the word Smith on it. I'll have to look for it the next time I'm there. That evening, Mr. Banks attempts to sack Poppins for frivolity, but Poppins, of course, turns the table on him and convinces him to bring the children to his bank the next day. That night, Mary sings to the children. Feed the birds, toppins a bag. Toppins, toppins, toppins a bag. Feed the birds, that's what she cries. While overhead, her birds fill the skies. Not only was Feed the Bird Walt Disney's favorite song in the film, but it is said that any time he visited the Sherman Brothers during the rest of his life, all he would have to say was, play it. And they knew he wanted to hear Feed the Birds. The old lady feeding the birds was none other than Jane Darwell, Oscar winner for playing Ma Jode in Grapes of Wrath in 1940, a film I am sure that will appear in this podcast at some time. This is the final film of hers. She was living at the Motion Picture Country Home in Woodland Hills, California, when she was approached by Walt Disney Pictures to play the Bird Woman. She at first refused, but Walt Disney was so set on having her in the film that he personally visited her at her home and eventually persuaded her to take the part. He even sent a limo to fetch and return her during her one day of shooting. Ms. Darwell will always have a special spot at the Bank of Marquis, for if you go to our website and you click on the Featured Performer tab, the very first performer that was featured was Jane Darwell. Another side fact, feeding the birds at St. Paul's Cathedral, seen as a charitable act of kindness in the film, became forbidden by law in the 21st century, having resulted in excessive defecation from the expanding avian population. So the next day, Mr. Banks takes the children to his place of employment, the bank. Along the way, they see the bird woman. They want to give her tuppence to feed the birds, and Mr. Banks refuses to allow it, even though Michael says it is his money and he can do what he wants with it. In the bank, the children meet the old, stodgy, and scary, to a child, men that run the bank, including Mr. Dawes Sr., the chairman of the bank, who is played by Dick Van Dyke. When Mr. Dawes Sr. tries to take the tuppence from Michael, he and Jane get scared, cause a commotion at the bank, and run out and get lost in the streets of London, where they eventually run into Bert, who is working that evening as a chimney sweep. 
chimney, chim, chimney, chim, chim, cherry. A sweep is as lucky as lucky can be. Chim, chimney, chim, chimney, chim, chim, cheroo. Good luck will rub off when I shake hands with you. Or blow me a kiss. And that's lucky too. They run into Mary Poppins, and all four are swept up the chimney to the rooftops with the other sweeps. Stippy time! 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 Come on, mighty stippy time! Now this is an absolute show-stopping music and dance number that really highlights the dexterity and flexibility of Van Dyke's dancing ability. The choreography and its execution is slightly messy, not perfect, except for Mary, of course, which is just right for these chimney sweeps. The chimney sweeps are run off the rooftops by Admiral Boom. And most make their way down the Banks chimney where all the sweeps shake hands with a once again befuddled Mr. Banks. Mr. Banks demands that Mary explain herself and she gives the most perfect Mary Poppins reply. Mary Poppins, what is the meaning of this outrage? I beg your pardon? Will you be good enough to explain all this? First of all, I would like to make one thing quite clear. Yes. I never explain anything. Mr. Banks is called back to the bank to get sacked. He feels that he is in ruin, and it's all Mary Poppins' fault. Now, it is at this point in time that we realize that the movie has pulled a trick on us. This film isn't about the children, or Mary Poppins, or Bert, or the adventures. It is a redemption story of Mr. Banks, hence the title of the Hanks film, Saving Mr. Banks. Banks goes to the bank and gets sacked. He then appears to have a breakdown, but what he is really having is a breakthrough. He finds his heart and his love for his children and family. He leaves the bank to go fly a kite with his family. With tuppence for paper and strings, you can have your own set of wings. With your feet on the ground, you're a bird in flight. With your fist holding tight, the string of your kite. Oh, let's go fly a kite up to the highest height. Let's go fly a kite and send it soaring up through the atmosphere, up where the air is clear. Oh, let's go and of course the joy that he's feeling also melts the hearts of those cold gray men at the bank who give him his job back with a promotion it is at this point that mary poppins leaves the bank's family who are happy and together her job is done goodbye mary poppins don't stay away too long Postscript. 
Mary Poppins was released on August 27, 1964, to almost unanimous critical acclaim. It received a total of 13 Academy Award nominations, including Best Picture, a record for any other film released by Walt Disney Studios, and won five. Best Actress for Andrews, Best Film Editing, Best Original Music Score, Best Visual Effects, and Best Original Song for Chim Chim Churi. It was the top-grossing film of 1965 and the top-grossing Disney film for 20 years. At the time, it was the most expensive film produced by the Disney Studios, with an estimated budget of $6 million. It has since grossed over $102 million and is one of the most profitable movies of the 1960s. Walt Disney used his huge profits from the film to purchase land in Central Florida. And of course, that land became Walt Disney World. Robert Wise visited the set to view rushes of Julie Andrews' performance. She was cast immediately in the lead for The Sound of Music. The Mary Poppins soundtrack album, yes, I said album, was a huge seller. I know that I had it and the book that came with it, and I played it over and over and over again. This film influenced so many others that followed, most notably Chitty Chitty Bang Bang starring Dick Van Dyke, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, and... Bedknobs and Broomsticks, a semi-sequel to Poppins, starring Angela Lansbury, David Tomlinson, with some music cut from Mary Poppins. And of course, there's the classic Simpsons episode featuring Sherry Bobbins. All right, children, let's clean up this room. Oh man, do we have to? Now, now, I know a little secret that will make the job go twice as fast. If there's a task that must be done, don't turn your tail and run. Don't pout, don't sob, just do a half-assed job. If you cut every corner, it is really not so bad. Everybody does it, even mom and dad. What did the Bank of Marquis think of this film? Well, it's a 10 out of 10, of course. You can read my full review at my website, www.bankofmarquis.com. Now, I can only conclude with a quote from Dick Van Dyke from the commentary track of the 2004 40th Anniversary DVD. This film is chock full of entertainment. Next time on the Bank of Marquis Movie Podcast. No one's allowed to talk, is that it? You can't talk? No, you intimidate them. Good God, you're a woman. <laughs> is it better to be feared or respected? And I say, is it too much to ask for both? I humbly present the Jericho. To peace. Are red. Your tears for your long lost boss? Tears of joy. I hate job hunting. Yeah, vacation's over. Welcome home, sir. Put up the scanner, will you? Yeah, I can fly. So the upgrade is complete. Tell you what, throw a little hot rod red in there. And that's what's coming up next on the Bank of Marquis Movie Podcast.
If you'd like to reach out to us, email us at bankofmarquis at gmail.com. That's B-A-N-K-O-F-M-A-R-Q-U-I-S at gmail.com. And check out the website, www.bankofmarquis.com. And until next time... I'm watching you, Wazowski. Always watching.